This is the podcast Surgery I See Rounds. My name's Jeff Guy. The topic that I'd like to present today is the idea of early surgical excision and the uh, treatment of critically injured burn patients. When we look at the current literature in critical care, particularly in regards to sepsis, there's a massive amount of of research effort and, and literature produced on attempts to abrogate the systemic inflammatory response syndrome, or what we call SIRS. We've learned that often, particularly in regards to infection, it's not the actual source of infection, the bacteremia or the urinary tract infection that kills the patient, but it's the body's response to that infection. How does the patient's, how do they upregulate that inflammatory response? Uh, I use the example, it's not the fall that kills you, but the sudden stop. Um, the other example I'd like to use is the idea of the, the campfire. If you have a campfire in a forest and an ember gets out of the campfire and it sets the forest on fire, you can put out the campfire all day, but now you've got to deal with this forest fire. Um, this is the idea of trying to abrogate or control this sem- systemic inflammatory response syndrome. If we end up looking at somebody who has an abscess in their abdomen, uh, or have got a gangrenous gallbladder or appendix or a perforated colon, and they were presented to us in a state of septic shock. It would be considered remiss, which is a nice way of putting it, it would be considered malpractice, simply to put the patient on antibiotics. Because all the antibiotics in the world aren't going to treat that gangrenous gallbladder, or that gangrenous appendix, or the perforated viscous, or drain the abscess. We know that in order to have effective antimicrobial therapy, we have to get source control first. This notion is important when we think about things like myoglobinuria, for instance. If a patient has um, uh, a compartment syndrome, they're breaking down muscle, again, you could go ahead and give them all the bicarb and flush them with fluids all you want, but until you do that fasciotomy, release that muscle, stop the increasing damage of the muscle, hence the release of myoglobin, you're, really for, you're, you're just kind of uh, wasting your time unless you go after source control. 30 years ago, it was considered routine to let somebody sit around after a major burn injury five, six, seven days prior to sitting the patient to the operating room. However, our survivors, survivals were horrible. Now we're learning that virtually anybody could potentially survive a major burn injury. When I hear somebody say, well, that's a uniformly fatal burn, and you're talking about a 70% burn in a child or a middle-aged adult, it really just uh, makes me really uncomfortable because this is demonstrating an infamiliarity with the disease process, an infamiliarity with the literature, and a clear lack of understanding of the appropriate surgical therapy in the 21st century. Full thickness burn is a mass of non-viable tissue that acts as a pro-inflammatory generator and a source of sepsis. It is that burn that is increasing your systemic inflammatory response syndrome, and it is the burn that sets up the patient for the development of sepsis. The interface between the viable and non-viable tissue results in a sink of pro-inflammatory cells. The larger the mass of burn, the greater the likelihood there will be a generalized systemic inflammatory response, and the greater the likelihood of complications in organ dysfunction. To reduce the incidence of systemic inflammatory response, prompt surgical excision of the burn has been adopted with subsequent attenuation of length of stay, septic complications, and mortality. Over the past three decades, mortality from burns has decreased dramatically. And despite significant advances in critical care medicine, 
the early excision of the burn wound has been attributed from most of the reduction in burn mortality. And the reference for this is Dr. Basil Pruitt, The World Journal of Surgery, 1998, volume 22, pages 135 to 145. Back in 1974, 33 years ago, Dr. Berkey and his colleagues in Boston began the practice of early excision of burns and then coverage with allograft. For those of you who aren't familiar, allograft is cadaver skin. Children with massive burns began to survive injuries that were previously considered fatal. And they reported this role of early surgical excision in the Journal of Trauma, like I said, 33 years ago in the Journal of Trauma. With the success in children, their practice was expanded to include adults. Ron Tompkins, uh, also, also in Boston, and his colleagues evaluated the mortality data from the Massachusetts General Hospital, determined the effect of adopting early surgical excision of burn wounds. The burn mortality rate in 1974 was 24%, and has decreased to 7% in 19, for the period from 1979 to 18, 1984 after adoption of the institutional policy of early surgical excision. Now, anybody who's listening will say, well, you know, a lot was different was going on in 1974 uh, versus 1979-84 regarding critical care and so forth, and that would be accurate. But using logistic regression models, the authors were able to demonstrate that early surgical excision improved survival. Certainly, I would encourage you to look at that, and that's, that article appeared in the Annals of Surgery, 1986, Volume 204, pages 272 to 281. Peach and colleague demonstrated in the Journal of Pediatric Surgery in 1985 that early surgical excision decreased length of stay by almost one half. So we've shown that early surgical excision helps the, the children, helps adults, but then uh, Dr. Deach in 1983 demonstrated the advantages of early surgical excision in the elderly. Deach and his colleagues showed that in older burn victims, early excision resulted in a reduction in length of stay by 40%. Mortality was lower than predicted in the early surgical excision group. And Dr. Deach presented this information in the journal Trauma back in 1983 and in the journal Burns in 1985. Following this work, several other authors have documented the safety of early excision in the elderly with the benefit of reduced length of stay and reduction of septic uh, episodes and complications. This was done by Hera and uh, journal Trauma in 1990 and uh, Dr. Scott Connor in Annals of Surgery in 1990. Just a little editorial note. If you haven't noticed that this data on early surgical excision is nothing new, we're talking about data that was written over 25 years ago, and the names that you hear are not small-time names. People like Tompkins and Pruitt and Scott Connor. These are, uh, and Deach, these are um, uh, giants in the world of surgery. These are clearly surgical scholars. The group in Galveston performed a randomized trial of adults admitted with large burns to receive early or delayed surgical excision. Mortality was decreased in the early excision group. Following that initial trial, the trial was expanded to include 85 patients. In those patients, ages 17 to 30, without an inhalation injury, the early excision group had a significant reduction in hospital mortality, 9% for the early excision group versus 45% for the delayed excision group. Wu and his colleagues from the Shrine uh, in Galveston examined their experience in very early surgical excision in 157 children who had their first surgical procedure within 48 hours of injury. Patients had compressed length of stay, less wound contamination, fewer invasive wound infections than did patients who underwent surgery on post-injury days 3 to 6 or from those 7 to 14 days from their injury. In that study, they concluded that excision within 48 hours from injury was optimal for children with extensive burns. Dr. Wood and his colleagues published this in the Archive of Surgery in 2002, Volume 27. The role of early surgical excision was recently discussed in an article in the Journal of the American College of Surgeons. 
This article was, uh, again, by somebody who I have a tremendous amount of respect for, and that's Jeff Saffel, who runs the burning unit into the Intermountain Burn Center in uh, Salt Lake City. Dr. Saffel did an uh, author-reviewed evidence-based medicine regarding the practice of burn surgery, and he concluded, and this is reading right out of his paper, quote, there is no question that early surgical excision is widely accepted for burns of all sizes, and that surgeons are excising large burns wounds earlier and more aggressively than ever before. But most burn surgeons wait to perform initial excision and grafting after patients have been stabilized after fluid resuscitation before wounds can become contaminated with bacteria. There might be no need to rush unresuscitated persons. There may be no need to rush unresuscitated patients to surgery, but neither is there any benefit to waiting beyond two or three days post burn. And that was in uh, Jack's Journal of American College of Surgery, 2002, Volume 196. Though not everyone advocates immediate surgery, there is no advantage to the patient and evidence to the contrary to delay excision of large burns beyond that 48-hour post-injury mark. Prompt excision of the burn and wound closure has time after time been shown to improve survival after major burn injury. Additional benefits compress length of stay and reduction of metabolic expenditure as well. Some authors have advocated immediate burn and wound excision and the literature would support that such a practice is safe, and with minimal adverse effects. This is the idea of taking somebody almost immediately to the operating room for their burn wound excision. And those who would advocate this in the literature, as I presented, are Dr. Wu in Archives of Surgery 2002, Dr. Herndon in Annals of Surgery 1989, and Barrett and Herndon uh, in Annals of Burn Fire Disasters in 1999. Dr. Barrett and Herndon recently supported immediate surgical excision as a therapy of choice for full thickness burns after demonstrating an abrogated metabolic response in children after major thermal injury, keeping in mind that the burn wound itself is the inflammatory generator. And a lot of what we do, and we've talked about this in a previous podcast, is the idea of trying to abrogate the rate of catabolism. How you can do that while keeping a patient in a burn is just something I don't understand. So clearly the literature is supportive of taking a, a patient with a major burn to the operating room earlier, not delayed. There does not appear to be any benefit taking a patient to the operating room after the 48-hour mark, but there may be some advantages. And those advantages come in the role of what is the significance of an inhalation injury in survival of a burn patient. The leading cause of death in burn patients is pulmonary complications, namely pneumonia, and the, the etiology of those is often related to a, a burn smoke inhalation injury. When we think of smoke inhalation, we really need to think of three elements. We have a thermal element, we have an asphyxiant element, and we have a delayed toxic-mediated lung injury. The thermal element is what people typically think, and that is you're breathing hot air and this is going to create an injury to your lung. Well, the reality is is that heat is a terrible, dry heat is a terrible conductor of heat. As you inhale uh, hot air and it goes to your nasal pharynx, typically it is reduced in temperature close to that of ambient temperature. Furthermore, your vocal cords will reflexively adduct trying to protect your lower airway. If you think about walking down Michigan Avenue in Chicago on a cold January, February day and it's whatever it is in Chicago, 10, 15, 20 degrees, you know that 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 20 degree air is not going into your lungs. By the time the air, the inhaled air, negotiates your nasopharynx and that large surface area, the air that you inhale uh, is warmed and moistened close to ambient temperatures. The same is true for somebody breathing hot air. Now, the converse of this is somebody inhaling steam. Steam is, is an excellent conductor of heat, and therefore, if somebody were to inhale steam, it's going to result in a significant thermal injury to the lung, which is almost uh, uh, uniformly fatal. So that is the element of temperature, or thermal. Now that we get to the asphyxiants. The asphyxiate elements of an inhalation injury typically involve things like carbon monoxide and hydrogen cyanide gas. 
Now, we typically know that carbon oxide is known as a silent, as a, a um, colorless, odorless gas that binds with a higher affinity to hemoglobin. Also, to the naive or the uninitiated, we say, ah, the treatment for carbon monoxide poisoning is oxygen, and therefore hyperbaric oxygen at something like three atmospheres. When somebody is placed on 100% oxygen with carbon monoxide poisoning, you see a tremendous reduction of the half-life from, say, 240 minutes to about 60 minutes. The one thing you would never want to do is take a patient uh, who has uh, a major burn injury and end up putting them particularly in a, a, a single-person uh, chamber where you don't have direct access to the patient. Carbon monoxide uh, poisoning treated hyperbaric oxygen has been shown to be beneficial in improving cognitive function when people get serial um, uh, treatments uh, over uh, initial several days. And there was an article published several years ago in the New England Journal of Medicine that showed that people cognitively did better uh, weeks down the road. This is perhaps an appropriate therapy for somebody who has pure carbon monoxide poisoning related to a bad furnace or bad car exhaust, but taking a patient who has a burn of 70-80% and putting them in a hyperbaric chamber is, is um, going to be fraught with complications. The other issue that comes up is often people who have severe inhalation injuries have a tremendous amount of mucus plugging as they desquamate or basically shed the lining of their lungs, and they get something called bronchorrhea. Well, we know what diarrhea is, and bronchorrhea is basically diarrhea of the nasopharynx, or the, uh, the respiratory tree. Keep in mind that on your respiratory tree, you have a mucociliary escalator. Lining your lungs, you've got these little hair cells, and on those little hair cells is a blanket of mucus, in which you trap all kinds of nasty goodies that you inhale. They become entrapped on that mucus blanket like flies on a flypaper. The cilia cells then, in a very coordinated fashion, move that swill of trapped debris up towards the mouth in an ab, what we call an ab oral direction. And then a couple times a day you, <coughs> you clear your throat and you swallow that debris. It goes into your GI tract and you know where it goes from there. In somebody who has a significant amount of debris, we typically see this occur about 48 hours, but in somebody who's severely injured, they can have a lot of mucus plugging and trapping. Now, how does this relate to hyperbaric oxygen? Let's change gears for a second and imagine the patient who has a tension pneumothorax. Somebody's been stabbed in the chest or in their car accident, they've got a broken rib, and that results in a, a pneumothorax. And then we put the patient in a helicopter without decompressing the pneumothorax. Anybody has been around the block knows that's wrong. And the reason why it's wrong is because when you take the patient from sea level and you put them up in a helicopter to say 1,500 or 2,500 feet, you see a decrease in barometric pressure. And that decrease in barometric pressure is going to make that pneumothorax get larger. Same thing, somebody has a gastric ileus, you put them up in a helicopter without an NG tube, the gastric ileus will get larger because less barometric pressure. Now, let's change gears a little bit and look at the role of hyperbaric oxygen here. You've got the patient and they're being dove for, they have a big burn, they've got a complex lung injury. Not an isolated carbon monoxide poisoning, but a complex lung injury which is resulting of cyanide poisoning, carbon monoxide, a delayed toxic lung injury, and a burn on top. And they develop a mucus plug at three atmospheres. And then you decompress the patient to sea level, what's going to happen to the area distal to that? It's likely to enlarge as well, if it doesn't absorb. So this is going to get into things like nitrogen washout and so forth. But uh, that's why most people are not big advocates uh, in uh, carbon monoxide, or hyperbaric treatment for carbon monoxide associated with a complex burn injury. The other asphyxiant that we see uh, a lot in people who have significant burn injuries is hydrogen cyanide poisoning. That sounds bad. Hydrogen cyanide is a product of incomplete uh, combustion of things like pro of, uh, plastics and aldehydes and so forth. And cyanide binds to 
uh, cytochrome AA3 of your electron transport chain. Just so you don't have biochemistry flashbacks and, and go into night terrors, what happens is it binds to this cytochrome and it shuts down electron transport chain. And so electron transport chain can't work. The Krebs cycle or the citric acid cycle, whatever you want to call it, can't work either because it can't spin anything off into the electron transport chain. So you're left with just for energy substrate utilization is glycolysis, basically glucose to pyruvate. And instead of making 36 net ATP or whatever the number is, you're making 2 net ATP for glucose. And you're left with this pyruvate. This pyruvate goes to lactate, and then you're using the Cori cycle uh, for your energy. Now, patients will have a normal oxygen saturation, but they're going to have a lactic acidosis. Typically, if you draw a cyanide level and you're using that to decide to treat a patient, the patient will probably die because it's usually a send-out. It takes hours or days to get back. So these patients will have a normal oxygen saturation, but they're not offloading the oxygen, they're not offloading the boxcars, so they may have a lactic acidosis and a very high venous saturation. Patients will have a large carbon monoxide level. They may have a CO level of, say, 15 or 20. They're going to have a good history of somebody who's been entrapped in the building of smoke inhalation. And those are people we should consider have cyanide poisoning. Now, the treatment for these in the past, at least in the United States, has been something called a lily kit. And the lily kit, you basically induce a, another poisoning called uh, a met hemoglobinemia. And when you induce this met hemoglobinemia, the cyanide molecule likes the met hemoglobin better than cytochrome A3, so it goes over to the met hemoglobin and allows uh, oxidative phosphorylation to continue to make energy. Now, this is dangerous. It's not very effective. And you literally are changing one poisoning for the other. Now, the Europeans, particularly the French, are ahead of us on this, is that they've been using hydroxycobalamin uh, for treatment of acute cyanide poisoning. And this is probably something that we'll dedicate an entire podcast to at a later time. But all this is is a very safe chelating agent that will chelate with the hydrogen cyanide and allow oxidative phosphorylation to continue. Then this brings us to this idea of delayed toxic lung injury. And often people who have done any kind of burning uh, work in the past will know that the initial period following a patient who comes in out of a structure of fire has a 60 or 70 percent burn. The first two days we really call the honeymoon period, which seems really hard to believe that you're dealing with somebody who's in burn shock, getting a lot of fluids, getting some colloid, uh, getting excisions, and this is the honeymoon because often it's going to get worse before it gets better. Why is this the honeymoon period? Well, what happens is is that the products of incomplete combustion, the the smoke, if you want to think of it as poisonous dust, whatever, whatever makes the metal image for you. The patient inhales it, it settles on the tracheal bronchial tree, and then over a period of about 24 to 48 hours, they begin to slough. And as they slough, they lose that mucociliary escalator we talked about, and they have all that debris, the bronchorrhea, and that ends up going to the lungs and creates things like mucus plugging and ulcerations and so forth. It makes it difficult to oxygenate these patients. From a physiological standpoint, they act very much like somebody who has cystic fibrosis. And we use um, some really unique modes of ventilation, uh, we prefer to use high-frequency percussive ventilation, or something called a VDR. And again, this would be a topic for a later discussion. It's a fun ventilator to use, and it can ventilate a rock, and it seems to be very effective in patients who have this particular condition. But the key point is that this condition starts to manifest itself, typically in about 48 hours. And these patients get sick. They become difficult to oxygenate, difficult to ventilate. Now, let's go back to the, what started this talk, was the idea of the burn wound being a source of inflammation, being an inflammatory generator as a nidus for a surge response. And we said that there's clearly been an improvement in burn survival by early burn excision. 
Some people do it as soon as they come into the door. Some people hold 24 to 48 hours, but typically we're not really going to do much with a big burn after 48 hours as far as early excision. We want that burn, as much burn off in that first 48 hours. If you think that all of the ideas of the, the surge response, of, of abrogating catabolism, let's for the sake of discussion say all of that is junk science, which I don't believe it is. It's been done by very credible people in a very credible fashion. But for the sake of this discussion, let's say it is junk science. We still have this nemesis on the horizon, this, this hurricane, whatever you want to call it, and that is this pulmonary dysfunction from smoke inhalation, that it typically will occur at 48 hours. And when it hits, I have a patient who is critically ill on high ventilator settings and is not somebody I want to be traipsing back and forth to the operating room with. So a typical strategy is try to get as much done as early as we can for all the reasons we stated earlier, improve survival, abrogated catabolism, reduce infection, but also for the very practical reason that at 48 hours, their lungs are going to go down the toilet, and I want to be braced for impact. Now, in an earlier podcast, we talked about the idea of fluid creep, that burn patients require a lot of fluid, and we need to give them a lot of fluid, but only what they need. No more and no less, because what happens is we load them so much up with fluid that first 24 and 48 hours, and when the lungs go bad, we've got a patient who's volume overloaded, we're going to aggra aggravate their pulmonary injury. So what we typically try to do is give them the fluid they need, no more, no less, and if we have to, we want to try to get ourselves positioned that at 48 hours, we are right on that cusp of a patient who is euvolemic and, a, and the cusp of a patient who is hypovolemic. If you can imagine standing on the edge of a, cur edge of a cliff, of a precipice or a whatever, where you've got dry euvolemia, uh, we want to be right on that line. We don't want to be on the line of euvolemic and hypervolemic. We want to be able to give the lung some room. You would never go sailing without a compass or without a plan. Burn surgery requires a compass and requires a plan. It is my considered opinion, as somebody who spends 98% of my time doing burn critical care and burn surgery, is that a burn surgeon knows the course that a patient is going to take and is constantly looking down the road as to what is the next challenge. And I want to position my patient to be in the best possible position for what that next challenge is going to be. First 24 to 40 hours, I know it's going to be burn shock. I want to get them resuscitated. I know they're going to be hypodynamic. I want to give them fluids that stay intravascular as much as I can, not give them too much, not give them too little. I know that I go to the operating room, anesthesia is going to give them a lot of fluid, so I want to kind of have them adequately resuscitated, but leave room intravascularly for the anesthesiologist, or quite frankly, the SRNA, who's going to be doing the case, and, and who may never seen a burn before, and, and typically the patient gets too much fluid. And then after they do that, I want to sit there and I want to wait for that 48 to 72 hour mark where the other shoe hits the ground, and that's the, the pulmonary dysfunction. And I want to be positioned from a uh, cardiovascular standpoint to keep the patient as reasonably dry as I, I can. It is a misperception by naive providers, and when I say this, I'm not talking about burn providers, that we give our patients a lot of fluid. Yes, burn patients require a lot of fluid, but we like to give them just the amount of fluid they need and no more. That concludes this topic. Um, uh, I appreciate the email that we're receiving. It is very helpful, and it's nice to know that uh, this podcast is making a difference in the education of people really around the world. 
keep sending me the, the email. My um, uh, email address is jeffrey, J-E-F-F-R-E-Y dot guy at Vanderbilt dot edu. Uh, or you can visit our websites. Um, uh, my website is uh, www.burndoc.com. You can find uh, a website with all of our uh, podcast lectures uh, at um, icurounds.com. Thank you. Musical excerpts used in this podcast are podcast-saved. The artist is Brother Love. The title is There She Goes. All rights reserved.